I am thankful to be back together also over our over break um, after a, what seemed in many ways like a, a long break. Um, it's good to be back together. I know that sometimes it can be challenging to be in the Word over a long break like Christmas, um, like the Christmas season. And so I know for me, when I found myself distracted by other things that needed to be done, and it seemed like there were many of those, um, and when I was tempted to put off time in the Word, I thought often of the things that Jacob um, taught us as we looked at Proverbs 14, excuse me, Proverbs 4, 23, the last time that we were together, where it says, Above all things, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. I was reminded many times of the thing that he shared with us about the Pharisees, that they guarded against impurity, however, they lacked Jesus. Therefore, they lacked the source. And it helped me to see how much I need to be drawing from the source, to be drawing from God through his word, especially during a really busy season. And often when I got carried away by all of the things um, that I thought needed to be done, those excessive things, as, as Martha did, I thought of Jesus' words, excuse me, only one thing is necessary, and Mary, it's the thing that Mary has chosen. I know that these lessons have been so helpful to remind me how much I need God in his word. And so I am thankful that this is where we begin each week that we gather together. So go ahead and get out your notebook, and let's um, turn over and look at the back. We're going to look at our purpose and at our disciplines. So the purpose in our meeting together each week is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God. Excuse me. So that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. Ladies, do you know that we are about halfway through Wellspring? And it's been about four months since most of us have begun um, a Bible reading plan so that we have a tool to get into God's word every day so that we're meeting with the Lord and growing in our understanding of how desperately we need him, knowing that yesterday's fill of the word is not sufficient for what we need today, right? Each day we need a fresh supply from him. So if it has been hard for you to be in the word over the break, I just want to encourage you this morning. Galatians 6, 9 says, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So if you are growing weary because you feel overwhelmed that you're behind in your reading plan, and maybe there's no joy when you do read because you feel guilty that you're not keeping up, how about letting today be a reset day? Can I just encourage you to get out your plan and just pick up where you left off? You will finish eventually if you don't give up. And if you're the kind that stresses out as you see a date 
and you know that you're behind from that date, then go ahead and pick up on today's date. Will you miss some things? Sure, you will. But we need to remember that we are aiming for a lifelong habit. Okay, t- think about 10 years from now, 20 years from now. Think about the kind of women that we will be having met with God over and over again, having read through his word, the entire word, maybe 10 times, 20 times. Think about how much better we will know him then than we do today. And isn't that what we want? So if it's been hard for you to be in the word over the break, please don't be discouraged, especially if this is new for you, if this is the first time that you've ever tried to read through the Bible or used a reading plan. Anytime we begin something new, it takes discipline. That's why we call these disciplines. But as we persevere in our time with the Lord, his word only gets sweeter. Discipline is not a bad thing. It's helpful because it is what will keep us to continue to come to meet with God in his word. And as we do that, he transforms our motivations and our desires. And increasingly, these words from Psalm 119:103 become ours. It says, How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. That is what we've been cultivating over these past four months of Wellspring and what we want to cultivate for the rest of our lives. So discipline number one, then, is to prayerfully shepherd our hearts toward God through the word of God and, in particular, the gospel. The emphasis of this is on our hearts. It's so important that we understand our own hearts because when we do, when we understand where we are weak and vulnerable, it helps us to yearn more for Jesus. And it drives us to shepherd our heart back to him through his word, to feed our hearts from his word. If we do that, we will be overflowing with the God of the word. And we'll be ready to interact with others with wisdom and grace and humility so that others will be spurred on by our pursuit of Christ. But do you see that that only comes from being consistently in the word? If we don't prayerfully meet with God in his word, what will we have to say when God brings other people into our lives? Except maybe repeat a few things that maybe we learned from even months past? Or repeat a few buzzwords that we've heard at church, even though we're really not even living them out? See, that doesn't help um, to contribute to the growth of the body. And that needs to be our concern. It's not what we want, is it? We don't want to be that kind of a woman for the gospel's sake or for our own heart's sake. We need to be a different kind of woman the kind of woman who really does shepherd her heart, who takes her heart before God in his word and humbles herself before him. And then discipline number two, she ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. 
Today our teaching moves into discipline number two. Not because we move on and coast and forget about our hearts. We all know that, right? We never move on from caring for and feeding our hearts. But we're moving on into discipline number two because the household is the first place where the gospel's work in our lives has the opportunity and the responsibility to be displayed. I know that for me, because of my own sinful heart, my home can often be the place of my biggest regrets and failures, even when I don't mean them to be. Even though that's not my desire, I can so easily become impatient with my husband or frustrated as I care for my mom. Maybe some of you have strained or broken relationships with family members. And maybe some of you have even lost hope. But that is what makes our homes such a perfect showplace for the gospel. When we give up our self-sufficiency and we grow in our dependency on Christ, he gets the glory for everything that he does in and through us as we live out our faith in our homes and before our family. I know I often need to be reminded that the gospel is that powerful. It enables us to love the people that we live with or the people that we're called to care for because we know that we are recipients of God's love. So I want you to look at the quote that uh, is at the beginning of your um, outline. It's from The Council of the Cross by Elise Fitzpatrick, and it's how she ends the chapter on the gospel and relationships. She says, The gospel changes everything about us. Most particularly, it changes how we love and treat others. Soaking ourselves in the astounding love of God for us, weak and sinful as we are, will cause us to become people who love. The pure, undefiled Prince of Heaven, Jesus Christ, was called a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It should be obvious that he loves sinners because he loved us. Living in the light of this truth will enable us to love. It will remove our self-righteousness and craving for respect. It will free us to lay down our lives and not keep a running tally of who sins most or who serves most. And it will make us patient and gentle. The gospel is the environment for all relationships. The gospel teaches me to love. That gives me hope. 1 John 4, 9-11 says, In this the love of God has been made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that, we have been, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Do you remember what propitiation means? Remember back to those very, few, those very first lessons? Propitiation means wrath satisfied. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love 
one another. Ladies, we must strive for this kind of love. We must plead for God to develop his love in our hearts. We won't just wake up one morning and find that our home is all that it should be. It doesn't happen that way, does it? No, we have to labor and apply ourselves and take advantage of every opportunity that God gives us to love those in our households. And that leads us to discipline number three, with a heart for God in the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. If we are being careful to shepherd our own hearts with God's word and we're being faithful to minister to those in our household, then we will care well for others. We will be useful instruments in the hand of God to minister to those beyond our own households. When we're talking to another woman and maybe we sense that she's struggling, we'll desire to care for her and we'll know where to start in doing that. We'll start with her heart. Maybe we'll ask something like, where is your heart? What is your heart doing when you're in God's word? Because when we understand the heart, it gives us great insight into know how to care for her. It always comes back to the heart, to our heart in God's word, doesn't it? Because that's where God reveals himself most clearly to us. And so when we're meeting with another woman, we're going to want to point her there. If we're intentional with these disciplines, if we labor, if we're diligent, we will become women of integrity. And we will be what we are, wherever we are. See, we won't be one thing in private, and then another thing at home, and then something altogether different to the church. No, we'll be the same woman wherever we go, whoever we come in contact with. And we'll have something significant to say as we put the gospel on display. So with that understanding, let's talk about the home. So I want you to take out your outline and we're going to look at the home, a biblical survey of the home. Now we're going to be um, using this outline both this week and then we'll finish it up next week. So this is one lesson, but we needed to divide it up into two weeks because of time. So my prayer is that as we look um, at all of these, well, we're going to look at most of these passages of Scripture. We won't have time to look at all of them. But my prayer is that we will gain insight and we'll have a better understanding of God's desire for household relationships. We'll see how discipline number one and discipline number two are connected and intertwined throughout Scripture, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So today, as we look at these scriptures, we'll find examples of, peop- of people in the Bible who grasped God's heart for the household and those who did not. We'll see the impact and the consequences of these people's choices, both positive and negative, across generations. And then finally, we will be reminded, I trust, and encouraged to not lose hope and to persevere in the call 
and the privilege to cultivate Christ-centered homes. So before we dig in this morning, um, let's go ahead and pray and ask God for his help. Father, we do as we um, open the pages of your word this morning. I I pray that our hearts would be open to the things that you have to teach us. Father, we need your help in understanding. We are so thankful that you have given us your word and that you speak to us through your word. You reveal your heart to us through your word. And so I pray that as we look this morning, that we would see your heart for the household. And Father, that we then would be convinced of the things that we need to do to invest in our own households so that we glorify you there. Father, that's our desire, and we pray for your help in that. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, we're going to look at nine categories to help us see God's heart for household relationships. And I just want to remind you that this week and next week is a survey. So we're going to look at many um, passages of the Bible, starting in the Old Testament and working our way into the New Testament, for the purpose of trying to gain a good sense of God's heart for the home. So this morning, we're going to begin by looking at Mosaic Law. Now, as Christians, we are not under Mosaic Law. For example, we don't obey the command to... um, Excuse me, to honor our father and our mothers because it's part of the Ten Commandments. But we do obey it because Jesus taught it in Matthew 15. In the same way, when we see Old Testament promises, we need to understand to whom those promises are given. In fact, we're going to see one of those promises in the very first passage that we look at this morning. And we need to understand that when we see a promise in the Old Testament, that most often it is given to Israel. It's not given to Christians unless it's repeated in the New Testament. But having said that, that doesn't mean that there's no value in, the, in Mosaic Law. It does have value because it reveals to us God's heart. All of Scripture is revelation, right? And all of Scripture is profitable. So all of Scripture in the Old Testament provides for us examples from which we can learn from. And it shows us the character of God. And we don't want to miss that. But when it comes to understanding what we are to do in regard to our household relationships, we want to obey for the right reason under Christ. We exalt Christ because he is greater than Mosaic law. So let's look at number one on our outline this morning. The relationship between the heart and household relationships. So let's start by looking at Exodus um, chapter 20. So I'd like for you to turn with me there. Now Exodus 20, um, verse 12, is in the middle of the Ten Commandments. Um, In fact, it's the verse, uh, excuse me, verse 12 is the fifth commandment. Now, the first four commandments are concerned with Israel's relationship with God. They're vertical. And then we see a a turn. We see a different focus in the remaining commandments. They're horizontal. 
which means that they focus on human relationships. And so this morning, we're going to look very specifically at those commandments that focus on household relationships. So let's look at verse 12. It says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Okay, so that's where we know the land that he's speaking of is the land that's promised to Israel. So the, the first household relationship that God deals with is the parent-child relationship. Okay, The way that children are to respond to their parents. They are to show them honor. And then let's look down at verse 14. The next uh, household relationship that it speaks of in the commands is it says you um, you shall not commit adultery. So again, God here is focused on the home. He's concerned about the husband-wife relationship. Then in verse 17, God is concerned that Israel think rightly about their neighbor's household. When he says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. See, Israel is to be very concerned that they weren't looking wrongly at another person's household. God desired that Israel think rightly about the household in everything and everyone in and associated with the household. Now, I think it's interesting that in the Ten Commandments, the first thing that God described was how to relate correctly to him, how to relate rightly to him. And then the very next thing that he addresses is the household. In fact, three times in the last six commandments, God deals with household relationships. So God had very specific expectations for the home as he's giving the Mosaic law. He is thinking about household relationships. So we know that the home is on God's mind. Now I want you to turn to Deuteronomy, and we're going to look at chapter 4, verse 9. Now if you remember, um, Moses led the Israelites into Egypt. But they rebelled and they wouldn't go and take possession of the land that God had given to them. And so they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And because of that, they weren't allowed to go into the land until the generation that rebelled died off. So now Moses is talking to the children, to their children. Um, who are now grown. So they are now the ones who are about to go into the promised land and to conquer it. They had grown up understanding that God wanted them to honor their parents. And now many of them are parents themselves. And Moses is at the end of his life here, and he is now reteaching them the law prior to their going into the promised land. He says, only give heed to yourselves and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life. Okay, there's discipline number one, 
spelled out for Israel. But make them known to your sons and your grandsons. Can you see how he ties the heart to the home? Verse 10, remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when the Lord said to me, assemble the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and that they may teach their children. So the burden for the Israelite household was for the parents to make known to their children what God did in redeeming them from Egypt. So when God gave the old covenant in the wilderness, um, his intent was not just for that generation. All along, he had in view the coming generations. That's why God said, let them hear my words that they may teach them to their children. And you see how closely that follows on the heels of caring for their own heart. God's heart has always been that they would take care of their own hearts, and it's the same for us, and teach it, teach their children. Okay, so let's look at Deuteronomy four. I'm um, excuse me, Deuteronomy six, four through nine. Okay, these verses are called the Shema from the Hebrew word to hear, to listen, and to obey. Starting in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Okay, there's discipline number one again. Here's discipline number two. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be, on, be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your, on, and on your gates. Did you hear in his commands God's heart for the household. He's telling Israel everything that you do in your households, from from lying down when you go to sleep at night, to getting up in the morning from your sleep, to walking and talking along the way as you leave your houses and and you're headed out for your day, as you come back home to your houses, God is saying your household, Israel, is to be dominated by your concern for my word. There is to be an inseparable connection between love the Lord your God with all your heart and teach them to your children. Discipline number one, our heart, and discipline number two, our household or our homes, are inseparable. Now, why is this so important? Go ahead and look, look back up at verse 2. He says, So that they and their children and the children after them may fear the Lord their God and keep his commandments as long as you live. So God's desire for them was to leave an imprint, an impression on their households, on their children's hearts, 
Now we know that in order to leave an impression on something, it, it needs to press into something for a long time, right? An impression is left when something is bound tightly over a period of time. God wanted the Israelites to impress his words on their own hearts and on the hearts of the next generation. And how were they to do that? By living them out on a daily basis. That would make an impression. By talking about them and thinking about them and writing them, they were to constantly be on their, on their minds and in their hearts. The older generation was to constantly model their complete loyalty to God in every way possible. So do you see how discipline number one makes a strong impression on discipline number two? God places this burden on each individual adult um, for Israel so that the next generation will see this love for God lived out before them so that they will learn how to fear God. Now let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 4 to see another requirement that God placed on the older generation. So starting in verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and, cl- and clears away many nations before you, and then he lists seven nations that are greater and stronger than them. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. So the Israelites are told that when they enter the promised land, they are to completely destroy the inhabitants. They are to make no treaties with them, and they are to show them no mercy. Now look at verse 3. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. Now why is that? Look at verse 4. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So notice the consequence really for the parents in allowing their sons to intermarry with those who follow other gods. Verse 4 shows us that consequence. He says, Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. See, God is telling them that there can be no household in Israel where an Israelite marries a foreigner who worships another god. That kind of household is not to even exist in Israel. God makes it very clear the kind of household that he desires. And and that this kind of idolatrous household is not to exist in Israel. Now again, why is that? Because hearts are easily led astray. Hearts get turned away from Yahweh. So the burden is on the mothers and the fathers in Israel to not allow their children into this kind of marriage. 
They are to teach them in such a way that their children, the next generation, would want to follow God. That there would be no desire to abandon him. And a part of that meant not marrying people who had who followed other gods. Now, as we've talked about the disciplines week after week, we've seen that the condition of our hearts impacts our home. But here, where we just read, we see that the influences within our homes also affect and impact the heart. So we know that it goes both ways. That's why we have to be so careful. Now let's go to uh, Psalm 78, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. Here is an example of the inseparable connection between what we do with our hearts and the impact that it makes on the next generation. So as I read, I want you to count how many generations are addressed here. He says, Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to, to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should teach them to their children, that the generations to to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and and whose spirit was not faithful to God. So how many generations do we see here? Okay, first of all, we read about their ancestors, right? And then we read about the people, the current generation. And then we read about their children and then their grandchildren. So even in this passage, we see a concern for four generations. These Israelites are not to follow after the example of their parents who failed to watch over their hearts who quickly forgot about God and who became disloyal to him. God's desire, um, excuse me, God declared, he tells us that their hearts were stubborn and rebellious. It's not what God desires for them. And even though this passage addresses Israel, we do know that there's a principle that we can take away as believers today. We need to be convinced that God cares about our own hearts and the impact that we have on the next generation. We are responsible to declare the truths about God to ourselves and to the next generation. We're not to separate God's concern for our hearts and his concern for our homes. 
So let's look at another example of the inseparable connection between what we do with our heart and the impact that it makes on the next generation. I want you to turn to the very last book of the Old Testament. We're going to look at um, one verse in the book of Malachi. um, At the very end of Malachi, um, we see the returning exiles are rebuked for their hard-heartedness toward God's great love for them. And here they are called to repentance. Chapter 4 anticipates the return of the Lord, um, excuse me, the return of the Lord Jesus, but he's coming in judgment. So it exhorts them to fear his name and to remember his law. And then just before that 400 period, uh, 400 year period of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament, God promises to send forth Elijah to announce the Messiah's arrival. And we'll see who he's referring to in just a minute. So um, let's read verse 4. He says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in, in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So what is being said here? God's way of preparing his people Israel for his coming included making sure that household relationships were strong as God desired them to be. God's concern is that his people are ready to receive him by making sure that the father's hearts and the hearts of their children are connected, that their relationships are right. So now let's move on to the New Testament so that we can see the fulfillment of this. Turn to to Luke chapter 1. Now in Luke 1, we learn that Zacchaeus the priest and his wife Elizabeth are going to have a son and and that his name is to be called John. So now let's look at verses 16 and 17. And again, read about the restoration of household relationships which we just saw prophesied in Malachi. And he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So John was sent by God to Israel to awaken them, to show them their sin and their need for repentance. And he does that by also showing them their need to restore their household relationships so that they would be a people ready for the coming of the Messiah. So now let's turn to Ephesians, and we're going to look at chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And here again, we'll, we'll see that God has this inseparable relationship between the heart and the home. 
So here we read again a repeat of the fifth commandment. But now we see it given under Christ and to the church from the Apostle Paul. So in Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you, so that you may live long on the earth. Notice the difference in the promises there from the Old Testament. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So now we're shown the motivation for obedience. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Not simply from fear of punishment, but out of a reverential love for God. So, children need to be taught how to shepherd their hearts well in the gospel so as to obey and honor their parents in a way that honors God. This time, we see that it means addressing the right heart attitude as well as the right outward action. And, again, it's the responsibility. Did you notice that? It's a responsibility of the parents to teach that to their children. Now, we all know that God does the work in their hearts, but the parents are still responsible to do the teaching. And remember that much of the teaching that we do as parents is modeled. Sometimes that's good, sometimes that's not so good, right? We all know that. They learn much from observing our own attitude that we have toward God, positive and negative. So children need to be taught to obey their parents in the Lord, and this passage also shows us that parents are to shepherd their own hearts so as not to be frustrating their children. So let's move on to the next passage. I want you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we're going to look at verses 4 and 5. But first, let me just give you a little bit of background. In verses 1 through 3, Paul is writing to instruct Timothy regarding, regarding the church and overseers, or the elders. And in these verses, he shows us how crucial it is for the church to have leaders who are qualified to lead and who can set an example for the rest of the body. And so it addresses the character of these overseers, of these elders. So now let's start reading in verse 4. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care, excuse me, how will he take care of the church of God? So again, notice how much emphasis is placed on the heart and the home. Paul is showing us that the household relationships are a measure of a man's qualification, whether he is qualified or not, to lead others in the church. So that addresses men. But what about us as women? How does the Bible address the condition of, between our, our own hearts and our homes or our household relationships. Turn over to Titus 2 and we're going to look at verses 3 through 5. 
It says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to... And now notice the focus on the household. So the older women are to teach the younger women how to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, being uh, kind, being subject to their own husbands. Why? So that the word of God will not be dishonored. So what's the main concern here? It's the word of God, right? A woman's faithfulness in her home is of great significance in the gospel mission because the way a woman shepherds her heart and home impacts the way that others will speak of God's word. So does this give you insight into how concerned that we must be not only about our own hearts, but about our own households as well. So now we're going to move on to number two in our outline. And we're going to look at one Old Testament woman who did grasp God's heart for her family, for her household. So I want you to, to turn um, to Ruth. We're gonna, well, before you turn to Ruth, turn to Judges, but we're going to look at the life of Ruth. So Ruth's life uh, took place during the time when there was no king in Israel. Okay, It's when the judges ruled. So I want you to turn to the very last chapter of the book of Judges. It's the book right before Ruth. And we're going to notice the condition of Israel at this time. So chapter 21, verse 25 <clears throat> says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, sadly, because there was no submission to the authority of God, everyone, even the priests, did what was right in their own eyes. They did what they thought was best. So as you can imagine, sin was rampant. However, in the midst of this dark period of history, Ruth's life is a refreshing exception to, to that. Ruth lived in troubled times. We just read about it. But also, she faced her own terrible grief. And yet, we find in the midst of that, in the midst of the the culture that she lived in, in the midst of her own difficult circumstances, she clings to God. So turn over just one page, I think probably in all of your Bibles, we're going to look at Ruth 1. So we find a man named Elimelech who took his wife Naomi and his sons Malon and Kelon and they moved to Moab to escape the famine from their homeland in Bethlehem. So some years passed, and Elimelech dies. And so Naomi is left with her two sons. After that, their sons marry. They marry two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And then the sons die. So you can imagine Naomi's um, difficulty the, the uh, 
grief that she is suffering at this point. So that leaves Naomi, who is a Jew, with with two daughter-in-laws who are both Moabitesses. Okay, so that's Orpah and Ruth. And Ruth. So when Naomi then hears a little bit later that back home in Bethlehem that the famine is over, she decides to go home. But she encourages her two daughters-in-law to stay and remain in their homeland. She thinks it's best for them to remain with their own people, with their own language, their own culture. And so one of her daughters-in-law, Orpah, agrees and she stays in Moab. And then nothing more is mentioned of her again. But Ruth is determined to cling to her mother-in-law. So look look with me at Ruth 1, and we're going to look at verses 16 through 18, where she declares her loyalty by saying, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. Naomi knew that, that uh, Ruth was coming. Now, I don't want you to miss the significance of Ruth's decision. Ruth declares that she is prepared to leave her people, her culture, her language, her land, even her religion, in order to stay with Naomi. Now, think about that. I mean, we can read that and take that lightly. But think about you. Think about, you know, I think about me leaving everything that I know, everything that's familiar, to go and be with my mother in law. Ruth made the right spiritual decision that impacted her household when she wanted to remain with her mother in law because of her conviction to worship the God of, of Israel. Okay? So Ruth, at this point, we um, can conclude, wanted no part of the Moabite gods. Okay, She wanted Yahweh to be her God, and she wanted to remain committed to the family to which she had married into. And then finally, she demonstrated her love for God by caring for her household, by loving her widowed Um, a mother-in-law. Now remember, this is the very woman who encouraged her to stay in Moab and who, by her own admission, we read later in Ruth, is a very bitter woman. So let's take a look at how she cares for Naomi. Look at chapter 2 and verse 2. Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I might I may find favor. So Ruth asked Naomi um, if she could go and glean from the field so that she could provide for her mother-in-law. This was a provision under Mosaic law to care for the poor. The poor could come in and they could pick up any leftovers after the harvesters um, were done 
taking care of the land, taking their portion of the land. And so Naomi agrees and Ruth goes. So after gleaning for a while, she meets Ruth meets the landowner, Boaz. And amazingly, her reputation of integrity has preceded her. I want you to look with me at chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. This is what, what Boaz said to Ruth before he really had known her. He just met her at this point. He said, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband of your husband has been fully reported to me and how you left your father and mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know may the lord reward your work and the wa- and your wages be full from the lord the god of israel under whose wing you have come to seek refuge. So there are two things that Boaz knew about Ruth. Again, before he had even met her, he knew all that she had done for her mother-in-law and he knew that she had sought refuge under the wings of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now we really know very little about Ruth. We do know that she goes on to marry Boaz, that they have a child Obed, who is the grandfather of King David. But there really is not nothing spelled out for us about what kind of a wife she was or what kind of a mother that she was. But what we do know is that when she identified Israel's God, our God, as her own God, she cares for her household. She cared for Naomi. Even though she was a foreigner, even though she had no guarantee that she would ever remarry or that she would ever have children, her love for God drove her to love Naomi. And so again, we see this connection between caring for our own hearts out of our love for God and how that leads us to care for those in our own homes. I want to end with this quote from D.A. Carson regarding Ruth. He says, She, Ruth, could not have known that in making that choice, meaning leaving everything that she knew in Moab and going with her mother-in-law, that she would soon find herself married again. She could not have known that that marriage would make her an ancestor not only of the imposing divinic dynasty, but of the supreme king who centuries later would spring from it. And ladies, we, like Ruth, have no idea what the impact that our obedience might be in our own hearts or in the next generation or future generations. And so first, we must be convinced that our households are important to God and that he desires to impact them through our obedience to him. So let's pray and then Cammie's going to come up and lead us in another song. Father in heaven, uh, we again just want to thank you that you, in your kindness, have given us your word. 
Father, thank you as we have looked at these passages this morning that you have revealed to us your heart, your concern for the household. Father, I pray that we will be committed to those that you have placed in our households, that we would have great um, impact there with the gospel. I pray that we would be dependent on you and plead with you to develop your love for them in us, that you would be honored as we live out gospel-transformed lives there. And Father, that the generations to come would be impacted as we are faithful to teach them. Father, I pray that we would not miss the impact of our own hearts on our homes and that we would be careful to guard our own hearts, to feed our own hearts with your word and in particular the gospel so that we would be of positive impact on those that you have placed in our lives in our own households. And Father, we know we need your help in doing that. And so we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.